It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. You are listening to 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and of course anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. And it is a pleasure to welcome to the show Hannah Harrison. She is a postdoctoral scholar in the Department of Geography at the University of Guelph. And we're here to talk to her about an article she wrote in the conversation. It is called Family-Owned Fishing Businesses Displaced by Waterfront Developments on Great Lakes. So it's a pleasure to have Hannah on the show with us. Now, a little bit more about Hannah. She works with fish and people who care for and hatch and conserve conserve them. Now, that's a very interesting, I think, line of work in itself. And she's working on projects with Alaskan salmon hatcheries, as well as tr- like the traditional walleye cultivation and harvest with Ontario First Nations. We're going to talk to her a little bit about that as well. And the human dimensions on commercial fishing on the Great Lakes. Ah, okay. So this ties in somewhat with this because the story she talks about is a family-owned business that actually fishes on the Great Lakes. And one day they were out uh, fishing. They went out on their normal day to go out and catch. And when they returned, they couldn't dock their boat because it had started to be worked on to create space for a cruise ship on the Great Lakes, a cruise ship. Now, I find that very interesting. I hadn't thought of, I know people like to go out on their boats. I hadn't really thought of the Great Lakes as a cruise line area. But hey, there you have an example of that. So Hannah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, yeah, a cruise ship docks. Now, when you were looking into this story, what what did you find out anything about the size of the cruise ship that might be looking to dock in this area? What did you find out from talking to the family-owned business that was being interrupted by this? Yeah, so I don't actually know too much about the expected size of the cruise ships. Um, so this the all of this happened in Port Colborne, mm-hmm. Ontario, which is uh, right there on the far eastern side of Lake Erie. Uh, in this case, it was the the miner family who's been fishing out of Port Colborne and some of the surrounding ports for about 70 years now. They, this is they're now the third generation of their family fishery. Uh, and they did. They returned one day and they found that the unloading area that they have been using for years and years was all of a sudden fenced off kind of overnight without warning. And they had uh, <laughs> suddenly no place to unload their fish. Mm. Um, and this was, this was, of course, a, a big deal. When you bring in a big load of fish there, it's a, it's a very sensitive product. Um, they do keep mm-hmm. theirs on ice while it's on the boat, but it does need to be unloaded and then kept cold pretty, right. pretty immediately. They were able to unload that day uh, and they were able to, to continue to dock their boats there in Port Colburn. Um, but essentially, they've, they've really struggled to find a tenable long-term solution mm. to this, this access issue and what we have seen as an access issue with working waterfronts all over the Great Lakes and all over North America, really. Um, where we see kind of the slow gentrification or um, changing of working waterfronts to accommodate bigger outside interests at the Mm. expense of many little, um, more diverse livelihoods that really depend on that access to water. And of course, that doesn't sound necessarily all that unusual. We're hearing about those kind of interruptions and developments that are having an impact all around the country. But uh, what do you know from the work that you're doing about how that relationship is with, you know, the working waterfronts and, and relationship to port towns? 
Yeah, it's funny. You brought up COVID earlier. Mm. Um, I think before we saw a lot of people moving out of rural areas, trying to live in you know big places like Toronto or Vancouver, where there's more opportunity for employment. But of course, the cost of living is quite high, and we've seen property values um, really skyrocket over the last years. And now with COVID, we're kind of seeing the reverse of that situation where people are returning to rural areas or smaller towns. Um, And with this advent of being able to really work from home almost full time, and I think for some people, this is more or less a permanent situation. Mm -hmm. They're thinking, you know, why would I want to live in kind of the concrete jungle when I could live in a lovely small coastal area? Um, And I think, you know, that's great. I would probably feel that exact same (laughs) way if I were in that situation. Mm -hmm. Um, But I... I think unappreciated there is that when you have folks coming in with quite a lot of capital, it really does change the fabric and the priorities of some of these small places. If the property values, let's say in a small coastal area are a lot cheaper, um, then you might see a condo development go in. And, and that that type of thing is happening in places like Port Dover, Port Stanley, mm-hmm. um, and other folks are, are in other places around the Great Lakes. Um, and, and of course, there's nothing wrong with wanting to live in these areas, but we often see that these condo developments go in really close to active working waterfront space, those places where kind of the ocean or the lake meets the land. And it's also the home of, of industry. It's where yeah. um, local people make a living. It's it's our connection. It's, it's that interface between people who want to eat fish or use marine resources uh, and the people who bring them to us, who go out and spend that time harvesting, who have had those investments in those marine industries. Um, and unfortunately, though people want to live in those areas, they often are less aware of maybe some of the less savory aspects. So, for example, the condo development that's gone in in Port Dover uh, it's a, it's going to be a lovely facility, and it looks out on the small boat harbor there. Um, the tugboats are so cute. It's at the lighthouse is right there. It's a really lovely place to want to live. Mm-hmm. But it also is next to a working boat basin. So at four in the morning, when all of those engines start up and mm. there's bright lights and loud noise, yep. you know, is that as desirable? And and are we going to have a mismatch of expectations there of the folks who want to live in these rural places, but who are really unfamiliar with the lifestyles that right. keep those rural places going, that, that help people make a living there? Um, and I think that's where we start to see um, problems with kind of this gentrification, that people want things to be quiet, to be nice. Um but that's not really the reality of the fishing industry. It is a loud industry. It has bright lights. It can smell bad sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's normal. And just just as I think if we had a condo development go up next to an, a working farm, here in Ontario, we have uh, policies and regulations that protect the right to do normal farming practices. But strangely, we don't really have those same things to protect normal fishing practices. So a Right to Fish Act is the type of legislation that might really go a long way to helping kind of normalize expectations. And if you move to a coastal community, here's some of the things that you should expect to see and that really they belong there. They're normal. They are important to that community and aren't really something that we should complain about or try and um, push out of the communities that they live in through this other type of development. The rights that we have enshrined in law to protect agriculture mm. are not reflected for the same type of food production when it comes to the marine environment. So we have policies that protect farmers and their normal practices. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you want to complain about uh, you know, manure spreading or other things that are very normal to an agriculture, like the the normal business of, a, of an agricultural sector, mm. you, you, those complaints don't really go anywhere. We have rules to protect right. those practices, um, but we don't have those same rules for fisheries, specifically wild fisheries. Um, and that's 
it's, I think that that is a big step that many communities could take either at the local level or even at the provincial level to really recognize and protect that link that we have to this really important part of our food system. Right. Now, you just mentioned wild fisheries. Are you saying that's different than, say, a food or a fish hatchery or a fish farm? Yes. So the, the, as far as I remember, the, uh, ag- the act that protects agriculture in Ontario also protects aquaculture. Um, so if you have like a land-based trout farm, for instance, the practices, the normal day-to-day of that trout farm are likely to be protected under that existing act. Mm. Um, and though the act does allow for essentially um, a, an elected official or a, a minister to extend those protections to other sectors, it doesn't explicitly name wild fisheries. Mm. Okay. Well, you know, the other thing you mentioned there was about the desire to move to these small port towns, which is, of course, lovely. How is that affecting people that are that are going into these areas? Are they raising complaints about the noise? Are they raising complaints about the smells? And is that having an impact on uh, trying to uh, you know, shutter these businesses or move them uh, to other areas when they have already had the, you know, those those docking areas and those working areas for generations sometimes? You know, that's a really great question. And I think that because each place is so unique, it's its own working waterfront context, the way its condos or the way its, you know, residential spaces are developed, um, that I, unfortunately, I don't know the story of each of those places. I right. do know that in um, and other places that have really seen a lot of this working waterfront gentrification, such as the state of Maine in the United States, they do have these problems where um, people complain, they want, you know, rules set around when the boats can be started or you know, how many boats are allowed to be at the dock. Mm. Um, and that's, it seems like something that wouldn't happen that surely, you know, you move to this area and right. you would know that the, you want to live there because those things are there. But, mm. you know, I think that again, those expectations just really aren't set appropriately. Um, and, you know, maybe, maybe that's an indicator that we need to rethink other parts of how we develop communities. So for example, um, if, if, somebody is going to purchase that condo, maybe the realtor should have a responsibility to uh, be aware of the different kinds of industry that are taking place around that development and inform that potential buyer about the realities of living there. Um, what, whether you know the Realtors Association would be on board with those changes is, <laughs> is beyond what I can say, but there are different ways that I think we could begin to address that. Well, um, I think the other kind of side of what you've just asked is that often we really aren't that aware of, of the fleets, uh, you know, in particular the commercial fleets of the Great Lakes. Uh, they've been there quite a long time, um, both settler and indigenous fleets that, that are a really a critical part of how we get fish onto our plates in this region of the world. Um, it's also a really unique fishery. It's, it's one of the largest, if not the largest, freshwater commercial fishery on the planet. And that's really cool. And we eat a lot of those fish really close to where they're caught, which mm. is, I think, really unique in the seafood world where seafood supply chains tend to have really, really large carbon footprints because that seafood's getting shipped all over the place. But here in the Great Lakes region, we pretty much eat out of the lakes where those fish are caught. And that's that's a really special thing. But our awareness as a society about that 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 very short and carbon friendly supply chain is pretty poor, in my view. We mm. we don't really have a lot of uh, understanding of where those fish come from. Mm. I've heard stories from the commercial fleets that they'll pull up to unload their fish at the dock, and they'll have tourists who've come down. Maybe they've just had a perch dinner next door at a restaurant, and they'll be like, "Oh wow, did you catch those fish in this lake?" That that awareness of this is where food comes from, mm. really just isn't a part of our our understanding of, of fish in this region. Wow. 
Yeah. Uh, and, and I, yeah, I think that's a shame. And it's in part, in parcel probably because we're also seeing a grain of the fleet phenomenon on the lakes, which means that we're seeing a lot of people who are participating in the fishery aging out. They're starting to mm. retire. Maybe they pass away. And we really do not have a young group of people who are coming in at the same rate to take over those livelihoods or to learn those trades. Um, and that's, that's, you know, that creates a, a smaller and smaller portion of people that we see in society who are doing these jobs. And so, of course, we, we just are less aware of it. Right. Um, and of course, when they these fish are caught locally and sold locally, that means that whether the catchers are also have their own fish market or whether they're selling them to other local areas uh, that are then selling them, that, that helps to uh, with the economy and with the local economy. But I guess if it is aging out and there is fewer uh, people that are doing these kind of industries, uh, I guess on the plus side, the fish are probably happy about that, I'm guessing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I won't, I won't dare speak for the fish themselves. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, overall, these fisheries are quite well managed. Um, the Marine Stewardship Council has certified some of the fisheries in Lake Erie as sustainable, uh, which is is quite a big deal in the seafood world. Um, but in general, um, though, you know, obviously the Great Lakes have gone through tremendous social and ecological change yeah. in the last 100 and 150 years. Mm-hmm. And that they, are, they continue to change. You know, they're a very dynamic set of ecosystems. Um, but in general, these are really well-regulated fisheries. The, most of these species are um, managed on a quota system, which means that there's an upper limit of number of pounds or a number of individual fish that can be caught each year. And that that limit is based on a biological assessment of actually what lives in the lake and how mm. well are they doing? Are they spawning? Are they uh, growing up successfully? So, you know, in terms of a great place to to eat fish, the if you if you really care about you know sustainable management, the Great Lakes are are a really excellent example of that um, when it comes to the biological factors. Mm. Right. Um- Mentioning the lakes again and what the lakes have gone through, do you know much about the state of the lakes at this point? I know at one point, I think Lake Erie was quite badly polluted. I know it's cleaned up. Do you know much about how the how the lakes are doing these days? Yes. So, um, the, as, as you say, the lakes, I think, had a long reputation, even in my mind, when I first moved to Canada a few years ago, I really thought of Lake Erie as what it used to be in like the 70s, this kind of toxic, polluted, uh, fish kills kind of place. Um, and it's really, that's just really isn't the case anymore. You know, of course, all of these lakes have very large metropolitan areas on their on their shores. And mm. so, yes, there are pollutants in the water. Um, but by and large, these lakes are so much cleaner than they used to be um, and are generally a pretty reasonable place to eat fish out of. You know, I think there are health guidelines around how often should you eat fish out of the lakes, um, especially if you're pregnant or if you're a child. But I, I, last I checked, and of course, I would say that anyone who's interested should go and look for themselves. But last I checked, eating a fish every week out of the lakes was considered to be a, a healthy activity and a, and a reasonable way to eat fish. Mm. So it's, it is just so much better than it used to be. Um, and ironically, in part, that's because of some of the mussel invasions that we've seen in the oh, Great Lakes right. that are 
uber filter feeders. And so they've mm. really, really cleaned the water. Really? Uh, but unfortunately, the flip side of that is that they also clean out all of the um, zooplankton and phytoplankton and other things that, you know, other other species need to survive. So it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword mm. there. But in general, the lakes are much, much cleaner than they used to be. Wow, fascinating. Thanks for sharing that. So as you look to the future, what do you think the long and short-term concerns are coming out of these changes? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, you know, if I were to kind of look into a crystal ball here, um, I'd say a lot of the things that we see happening in Port Colborne, the short-term effect is that it really affects these small, usually family-owned, but not always, but just these small businesses that really depend on having that accessibility, but they depend on that accessibility to be reliable and safe. Um, so I'll to, I guess, finish the story about the Miner family, mm. um, they ended up unloading their fish up a cement wall over a high rail into wow. the middle of what is normally a pedestrian area, like a little walkway along the canal side there. Wow. And while, you know, in mid-November, not many tourists, this isn't very convenient, but it's not necessarily very dangerous. Mm. In the summer, there's, you know, children and families and people, tourists who would like to have a safe day next to the water. And having a fishing boat trying to unload into a truck at that same location really doesn't, those are not uh, complementary uses of that space. Mm. And well, I think that that's, that's maybe something people struggle to understand is how important that reliability and predictability is for a lot of waterfront businesses. They, they need to know they're already dealing with the, the dangers of the lake. You know, all of the lakes have um, their own ability to be quite dangerous right. to the people who depend upon them or who work upon yes, them. Yes. And, that that ability to come in and have literally a safe harbor that you know you can arrive in day in, day out, no matter what the weather is, no matter how heavily your boat is loaded, that is a really critical piece of being able to be a successful fisherman and really of any business that depends on that marine environment. Um, so I think that when we when we see these really slow changes to the walking water, sorry, when we see these really slow changes to the working waterfront, it's that reliability that really starts to be chipped away. Um, and that's, that's a, you know, the short term that we see kind of overnight happening. Um, in the long term, I worry that we're going to really see kind of the full collapse of some of these working waterfront dependent businesses, um, such as fisheries, mm -hmm. that we'll see more and more large wharf areas and fewer and fewer small, um, more diverse, more resilient communities that uh, have a variety of different livelihoods going on. You know, putting all of our eggs in one metaphorical basket, so to speak, mm. really isn't a great bet, especially with climate change. The lakes will continue to undergo change. We really need to have lots of little uh, livelihoods, lots of spaces, lots of ways that our communities are supported so that no matter whether it's a pandemic or climate change or uh, some other large disruption, they have other ways to fall back on industry, on economic development, um, and other things that support their local economies. Um, depending just on one sector or just condos or um, just mm -hmm. development that's being driven by people who don't live in those communities, that really sets communities into a vulnerable position. And I think that mm -hmm. that's something we should be trying to avoid. Right. When you were talking about the Miner family and where they had to unload their, their catch that day, I know you said that it wasn't necessarily that dangerous in, in November because it wasn't that busy, but it certainly still would have been very dangerous for the Miner family themselves unloading against a concrete wall. First of all, you would not want to get your foot or hand or anything else caught between the ship and the, uh, and the concrete, that's for sure. Not an ideal situation in any case. Certainly not. And, and I think you're right. You know, those are all 
risks of the work that they do. And, and I think fishermen especially, but really anyone who works in, in food harvesting mm-hmm. or, or growth accepts a tremendous amount of risk in what they do. And, and I think takes some pride in, in that they are, they're tough, they're resilient. They are going out there day in, day out, brave in the weather to bring us a really special food source that's mm-hmm. local to our area. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some of those things I think they would accept as normal risks of the job. Sure. But how many risks do you have to accept <laughs> to be able to do the job, I think is a question yeah. that we as society can ask, you know, how can we lessen those risks risk for them? How can we make it so that the things they have to do um, don't butt up against the extra challenges or barriers that we're putting in their way. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, now, there's a couple of other things that I wouldn't mind just touching on as before sure. we finish up. One is the Alaskan salmon hatcheries that you've been uh, working on in projects. What can you tell us quickly about that? Well, so I'm, I'm originally from Alaska. Uh, so nice. I grew up on Denied on the Lands in the Cook Inlet region. Um, mm. And so I, I grew up seeing these big salmon runs every year. Mm. And I didn't know it really until quite recently um, that a lot of those fish are coming from a hatchery. Uh, Alaska <laughs> produces between 1.6 to 1.7 billion juvenile salmon every year. Wow. And they are, uh, so we don't have finfish aquaculture that's actually illegal in the state of Alaska, but we actually have kind of this hybrid system that many people call sea ranching, where uh, wild salmon um, have been harv- have been taken in as broodstock, um, and their reproductive material is fertilized and then raised in the hatchery environment so that it's quite safe and mm. it, many, many more of the fish survive to that juvenile stage. Mm. And then they are released back into the, the wild environment where they go through their adult life cycle. Um, and then as they come back to, so salmon have an adaptation of returning to where they were born to yes. spawn and yes. to, to lay their own eggs. And as they come back to those areas, you then have this surplus of fish that uh, can be caught by the commercial salmon fleets, um, as well as then used to stock the next generation of the hatchery. Um, And this is a a pretty amazing system. Um, There's somewhere around 32 active hatcheries uh, across the Gulf of Alaska region, and then some in uh, Anchorage and in Fairbanks that do some sport fish-oriented stocking. And uh, by and large, these hatcheries have been thought as really kind of a a jewel in the the crown of Alaskan fisheries and that those fisheries in general have been very well managed over the years. And I think um, that those, those things are true that Alaska's stocking um, system and its genetics policy in particular were really kind of ahead of their time and learned from a lot of the mistakes that we've seen in the Pacific Northwest uh, around stocking, that stocking can sometimes actually be really bad for the wild fish that live there. Mm. Um, But I think there's now been in the last few years, some discussion about, well, is this as good as we think it is? Um, And I think that that really comes down to the issue of stocking is really for people. Um, Unless you're doing stocking to really save the last run of some some fish species, Mm. which is certainly not the case in Alaska where salmon, wild salmon are still quite abundant. You're really talking about trying to create the surplus of fish that uh, an industry can depend on. And that industry, of course, then provides the economy to small coastal communities. And people will get to enjoy a way of life um, that is based around abundance and this relationship with salmon that I think is quite important in Alaskan society. Hmm. Um, but the, the questions around that really come from, you know, are we doing more harm than good? Hmm. And are we doing it at such a scale that uh, it might be pretty pretty detrimental in the long term. Um, and we just don't know. Those are questions that you know, biologically we haven't answered. Uh, from my point of view as a human dimensions researcher, I think that it isn't just a biological question. We really need to decide what are the trade-offs that we're making when we stock at that extreme level, at that huge scale, 
And are those trade-offs that we're happy with in the long term? You know, is having or having coastal communities, um, fishing livelihoods worth it if we know that maybe there is some damage occurring to the, say, the genetic integrity of the wild population? Mm. Um, and, you know, I won't, I won't, I could go on and on, but I won't. Um, but I think that those are some of the questions to be asked there. And that's a lot of what my research is focused on in the last few years. Okay. Um, and also the fact that you are working with Ontario First Nations and in, I guess that's with traditional traditional walleye cultivation and harvesting. Uh, how did that start and, and what is your involvement there? Yeah, so um, I've been really lucky to work with the Shawanaga First Nation, um, who are just near Perry Sound, just a little bit north there on their traditional territories. And they have a really remarkable um, local effort, um, all driven through the First Nation and managed by the First Nation, to stock walleye back into their traditional harvesting areas. And they really have uh, done a tremendous job building this hatchery program through involvement uh, in the community. They have a river monitoring group that goes and watches and and cares for the salmon, or sorry, not the salmon, um, the walleye harvesting area and the spawning area to make sure that those areas are protected and respected during the spawning time. Um, And my work with them has been uh, kind of in the same line of the human dimensions of fish cultivation and stocking, that there's a lot of literature in the kind of the Western science world that suggests that these practices um, in salmonids have not always been positive. Um, And while there's much less, uh, I guess, evidence or research into the effects of stocking with walleye populations, I think it's really important that as we discuss, you know, is stocking good or bad biologically, that we also discuss, well, what other things does the process of cultivating fish, the process of caring for fish, um, what other things do those processes provide to us? Um, And in this case, I'm interested to work with the Shawanaga to to explore those ideas in an Indigenous context. Hmm. And have you been working with them very long? Um, so we we started talking with the the Shawanaga First Nation um, about a year ago, I guess. And uh, over that time, unfortunately, with COVID, um, mm. we've not been able to spend very much time or any time this last year uh, in the First Nation itself. We did uh, have a visit, um, I guess it would have been in late 2019. Um, and we're able to see their hatchery and, and some of their harvesting areas. Um, and that that's really special. It's it's really, I think, remarkable as a settler researcher and a, an immigrant to Canada to be invited into those spaces and get to see those things firsthand and have someone um, tell you about what those things mean mm. uh, in their culture and in their traditions. And, right. and so I feel very lucky to have been able to do that. You know, I, I can't help but think about those traditional values and the traditional ways in which they have been doing harvesting and doing their daily lives for generations and, and centuries. Have you discovered or seen anything that you found interesting so far in what you've been working on them with? Um, I think a lot of kind of the details are probably only for them to share. Um, but from my own point of view, I think one thing I've really taken away from working uh, with the Shawanaka First Nation and also just learning more about Anishinaabe peoples in general is that how close that relationship is with fish um, and and with the water and that those are that those relationships are so critical to many people's understanding of life and their place in the environment um, and that's obviously I don't have that same relationship um, as a settler and an immigrant here in Canada um, but to some smaller extent I I share that feeling um, having grown up amongst salmon people in in salmon country and how important that is. You know, in Alaska, people wear salmon on their clothes and they have earrings made of salmon skin. 
Hannah, we'll have to leave it there, but thank you so much for taking part in the show and sharing your article with us and also what you're working on, and both uh, with the Alaskan salmon hatcheries and with the Ontario First Nations and the Shawanika First Nation. That, that's very interesting stuff. And uh, hope that the COVID situation clears up first uh, soon so you can get back to work with them. I, I very much hope so as well. It would be wonderful to finally get to visit the field again. So let's hope that that resolves itself. <laughs> yes. Okay. Take care. And thanks once again. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. That is Hannah Harrison. She is a postdoctoral scholar in the Department of Geography at the University of Guelph. We've been talking to her not only about her article in The Conversation, Family-Owned Fishing Businesses Displaced by Waterfront Developments on the Great Lakes, but also about her other work with the Alaskan salmon hatcheries and the Shawanaga First Nation on traditional walleye cultivation and harvesting. All right. Don't go away. We're going to be right back with more here on Moment of Truth and Element FM right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And of course, you can also listen on the iHeartRadio app. Download the app. Punch in our coordinates, and you can listen anywhere you go. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show award-winning author and environmental legal, uh, also practicing lawyer, Joel Burkat, and he's here to talk to us about uh, a thriller novel that he wrote. It is called A Mid-Rage, so it's a pleasure to have Joel here. But, you know, it's also interesting that he is a in- practicing environmental uh, uh, lawyer because that is also around which this story takes place, uh, around uh, these these uh, coal mining. And so there's some really timely things that are going on in this novel that uh, that Joel has picked up on. And, and I believe also that, uh, Joel, if I'm not mistaken, A Mid-Rage actually follows the story of your main character in this book. And yes. this is sort of the continuation of that story for him, Correct. Yes, David. And first of all, let me say thank you for inviting me to your program. I'm really happy to be here and happy to be talking to your listeners and uh, looking forward to uh, our in- our interview and our meeting today. But yes, uh, my main character is a character named Mike Jacobs. And Mike is a young uh, environmental lawyer, a prosecutor. Um, one of the things that's really kind of fascinating is how much uh, how much authority and power young people have. Uh, when I was a young man, uh, I started out at Pennsylvania's Department of Environmental Resources. I was 25 years old, and I was sent off to uh, <laughs> to try to cure the world of, of its ails. And uh, I look at, now that I'm an older guy, I look at <laughs> kids who are 25, and I say, my God, what were they thinking when they sent me out to do that? Right. But uh, it's, it's the way our society works, is that we have a lot of young people doing these tasks. So Mike is a young guy in this story, in a mid-range, he's now... Uh, all the way up to 28 years old, and he's um, he's going to try to uh, do the right thing if he can. Mm. So, uh, just before we get into talking about the novel, I want I want to give a little more background about yourself because I think it helps set up the story and it helps give it helps us flesh out some of the things that you're going to be talking about. So, you're a practicing environmental lawyer. You also write these thrillers. You're described as electrifying and accurate because you are a lawyer and uh, and deal with the environment, that again is also something that 
is very timely because of what we're dealing with with this climate situation we find ourselves in, right? And and I'm, I was wondering about, we've been told about this environmental issue for a long time. You know, as you mentioned, Mike Jacobs is, is this, um, I don't know if he's a young version of yourself to some degree. <laughs> well, no, Mike is Mike. And, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I will say that in terms of my background, which was your initial question, um, uh, Mike, uh, my background rather was I, I went to a Vermont law school, which specializes in environmental law. And I went there because I wanted to be an environmental lawyer. And then mm-hmm. I was very fortunate to work for three years for what was then called the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Resources as a, an assistant attorney general and prosecutor with them. And uh, uh, then I went into private practice and I represented a wide variety of clients, um, mostly uh companies, uh, many individuals uh, with various environmental issues and the like. So I've, I've really, at this point, I've pretty much seen it all as an environmental lawyer. I'm actually mm. at the point right now where I'm retired from the practice of law. I practiced for 40 years and uh, owing to a medical condition that I have that uh, we may talk about, um, I, uh, I had to retire from practicing law. So um you know, I, I have seen a lot of things. I've seen strip mining. I've seen deep mining. I've been inside of a nuclear power plant uh, control room, and I've been through a nuclear power plant. I've been in. Uh, I've, I've I've helped to buy and sell uh, wind turbines. Mm. I mean, I've been involved in uh, all kinds of cases: water quality, air quality, all of that. So I have a. I, I do have a pretty extensive background and experience. I was very uh, pleased. I, I noticed on. Um, on Amazon, uh, when you see the reviews from readers, that one of the people who commented and said that my story was quite accurate mm. was a former uh, United States attorney uh, from Pennsylvania. And I saw a couple of uh, former or current, I should say, uh, Department of Environmental Protection employees who commented very favorably about my story. Mm. So I, I think it is uh, accurate. I, I like to believe that my story is electrifying and uh, and it really is uh, quite a, uh, you know, quite a... Um, uh, I tried to make it as dramatic as possible and probably over-dramatize things. In fact, not probably, I did over-dramatize <laughs> things. Uh, much of what environmental lawyers do um, from day to day can be pretty dull stuff. Mm. Um, and when you're, when you're looking at a stack of regulations that's a foot high and you've got to go through them and coordinate them somehow or another so that you understand them, that's long and tedious work, and it would put most people to bed uh, to sleep very quickly. But I, I took all the good parts and, uh, <laughs> you know, the little slivers between the sure. boring parts, right, right. and I turned it into what I think is a, a couple of pretty exciting novels, with the third one uh, due out in a few months. Oh, nice. Well, congratulations uh, on all of that. I have to tell you also that I, I found the book to be written very much, and I'm not sure if you had this in mind, very much like a film script in terms of, you know, very short chapters that went from scene to scene almost. But I think this certainly would lend itself very well to a film script and and something that would translate well to the film. If you happen to know Steven Spielberg, feel free to tell him (laughs) that, would you? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, the coal mining industry is uh, hotly debated in the United States, but you know, as it is around the world, mm. I mean, the G7 just discussed uh, extensively uh, coal. And uh, I know um, whether it's coal or tar sand or oil and gas, 
uh, which are issues uh, in Canada as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there's some very, very significant issues. And, you know, I've met many, many people in the mining industry and in the uh, fracking industry. And the people who are actually the workers are, I'm going to tell you, some of the hardest working people I've ever met in sure. my life. I, bet. I mean, they, they risk their lives. Uh, they work in awful, awful conditions. I mean, you know, when it's 99 degrees outside, they're working. And when it's two degrees outside, they're yeah. working. Yeah. And they work in all of that kind of weather. And they're, they're salt of the earth, most of them, and, you know, really uh, good, hardworking people. And uh, obviously, you have to be, um, you have to wonder how they're going to really be taken care of. You know, uh, I, I do believe that President Biden is very serious here in the U.S., about, um, uh, dis, you know, about changing over the industry and doing away with the industry, but at the same time replacing those jobs. Well, you can't tell a guy, a, a coal, mine, coal miner in West Virginia or in Ohio or in Western PA, oh, we're going to give you a great job in the Silicon Valley in California. Yeah. <laughs> those sure. jobs have got to be where they are because sure. those people are hardworking, good, decent people, and they deserve that kind of thing. But at the same time, uh, we've got these industries and mining, certainly coal mining certainly is one that has a tremendous impact on the environment. It's from everything from the mining process itself to the burning of the coal. And uh, you look at uh, the impact that it has. And, you know, I had the good fortune as a young lawyer to be involved in regulating uh, the mining industry. But you see how the digging of the coal releases um, all kinds of sediment into streams, right. and it releases um, uh, eso, uh, sulfuric acid into the streams. I've seen many, many streams in Pennsylvania and elsewhere, for example, that are orange and red because of the acid that is released from these streams. The, the coal contains in it a little bit of uh, sulfur, and that sulfur, when it mixes with oxygen and water, turns into sulfur, sulfuric acid. And it kills the stream. I mean, these stream, thousands mm-hmm. of miles of streams in the U.S., and I'm sure the same thing in Canada, uh, where those streams have been destroyed by the mining. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then uh, the coal is, is burned, of course, and that is a huge, huge producer of um, uh, carbon dioxide as well as uh, particulates. And, you know, for people with lung diseases and the like, particulates can have a huge impact on their ability to breathe you know asthma emphysema people with those diseases have 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 strong strong issues uh with uh, medical issues health issues and then uh, the miners themselves you know with the uh, black lung disease Mm -hmm. and other diseases as well i mean it's you know it's it's a very um uh, very uh, difficult industry because of the damage that it does to the miners uh to the neighbors to the environment uh, and to all of us yeah and uh, we're seeing you know, I'm sure we're going to get into this more, but we're sadly this year, we're seeing some of the really catastrophic effects of uh, climate change. I mean, you look at what's going on out in uh, Western Canada and what's going on in Western United oh, yeah. States with the fires that are going on, the intense, unbelievable temperatures. Yeah. I mean, temperatures that they've never seen yep. in, uh, in uh, the Western part of uh, the continent. Just unbelievable temperatures, drying out uh, vegetation, drying out trees, killing um, the agricultural crops, just yeah. destroying them, ruining the economy out there because of that, and then resulting in these fires. And mm-hmm. many of those fires are being caused naturally. They're not yeah. being caused by boneheads, you know, setting off fireworks. Yeah. They're just being caused by lightning and other uh, other kinds of things. And then you mm-hmm. look at what's happening in Europe right now. The terrible, terrible That's tragedy, sure. not just Europe. I mean, Europe had a terrible tragedy with the floods. Yeah. China's had it too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, there, there's a 
calamity that's going on all around us. And sadly, there are people who still want to deny climate change or they want to protect uh, the economy. Yeah. And at the same time, they're not taking notice of the fact that there is this terrible tragedy going on that is very, very costly yeah. in the tunes of hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions and billions of dollars yeah. uh, every year. Yeah. The characters and the story that you set up, um, it, it grabs you right from the start, of course. In my story of Mid-Rage, you yeah. know, um, a lot of uh, it is, I mean, it's, it's obviously it's fiction, so yes. it's all fiction. But, yep. you know, there are little bits and pieces that I drew from uh, uh, cases that I was aware of sure. or news reports that I had read. Yep. And uh, the opening chapter that you're talking about is obviously a fictionalized version. But there have been instances uh, where ins mine inspectors have been tormented and uh, beaten as a result of the work that they do. Uh, I've, I, you know, for dramatic purposes, I, I go a step further than yep. that in the opening chapter of A Mid-Rage. Um, but there are other chapters later on, too, where... Um, characters uh, neighbors are threatened yep. and that of course has happened and uh where um you know there there has been a, a obviously to protect the economic well-being of some people you know mm. they're willing to take extraordinary measures to do that mm -hmm. and that that absolutely has happened it has absolutely happened again in my fictionalized version it's you know, it's done dramatically, but yeah. those kinds of things do happen, sometimes subtly and sometimes very overtly. Yes. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. This is a Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. I am speaking with Joel Burkat. He is an award-winning author and environmental. He was at least a lawyer practicing, now retired, but he also writes legal thrillers. Wonderful book that we're we're talking about today, Amid Rage. And I had the honor uh, and pleasure of reading this. Now, Joel, I have to tell you that, as I mentioned to you off the top, I have uh, done some interviews with people around the environment, books on the environment. I'm not necessarily a guy that would pick up uh, a novel around this topic, but I have to tell you that I was very, very taken with from the very start. I, what I really found fascinating was this was this story that you take us through because you don't just look at we don't just see this this situation around the mining industry. You take us into the the legal world. Well, you know, um, I, I I practiced as a litigator for forty years, mm. and um, I saw it all from the inside out. Mm. And I wanted to write a story that would give readers a realistic view of what it's like to be inside the, the head of mm. lawyers mm -hmm. and to see what it's like to be in a courtroom yeah. and, and with this courtroom drama. And of course, I love John Grisham and other writers of the genre, you know, Scott Truro and Lisa Scottolini, and I, I enjoy their work as well. And I, I felt as though I had something to add to it because what I can bring to the story is my expertise as an environmental lawyer. Right. And environmental litigation is different from uh, criminal law yes. or different from personal injury law. Yes. And uh, it, it requires, I really wanted to bring, bring it uh, to the level of my readers who mm. are, I, you know, I believe all of my readers are intelligent people who are yep. going to be able to make decisions for themselves. But I didn't want to beat them over the head right. with uh, various uh, positions that I'm showing yes. in the story. But I did want to illustrate it for them. Right. So um, there are some, I think, some really terrific scenes. There's a, you know, an opening scene uh, where we meet Mike, who is in the middle of uh, examining and cross-examining kind of a down-on-his-luck mine operator. Mm -hmm. and, and Mike himself is 
pushing the limits of what is ethical. And, uh, and we see what that process is like. By the way, we also see Mike uh, getting his comeuppance as a result of having, you know, crossed the line right, in right. that examination yes. of that yes. witness earlier on. Later on in the story, when Mike is cross-examining uh, the antagonist in the story, Ernie Renati, mm. uh, I really tried to make that as dramatic and exciting as possible. Right. And I will tell you, I, as I was drafting that, I wrote that uh, examination that Mike did exactly the same way I w- would have written my notes uh, mm. if I were practicing in, right. in that case. Right. And so I thought, okay, how can I do this so that the readers can really get an appreciation yeah. for this? Yeah. I thought, okay, well, part of it is the questioning that you've got to come up with, but there's also the unknown. And that is, what is that witness going to do? Yeah. How's that witness going to react right. to your questioning? Yeah. And, and that's an unknown. And he yeah. may, or she may, you know, do something unexpected and that always happens, always, always happens. And so I tried to build that into the story as well. But Mike also is trying to, uh, trying to antagonize Renati. He really wants to set him off. Yes, he does. And, uh, and I, and again, I just tried to, how, how would I have done that as a practicing lawyer? How would I have, you know, tried to set off a witness because I knew that that would be his Achilles heel. Right. And so um, I really tried to bring that home for the readers so that the readers could could get a sense of what that process was like. Yes. Again, I was very pleased when, um, like I said, the, one of the former U.S. attorneys from uh, Pennsylvania wrote a nice review for me mm-hmm. on Amazon of my book and uh, really said it, it really, he felt it was very, very accurate, a very accurate portrayal. So that, that made me feel quite good that I, that I had gotten it right. Yes. I talked to other lawyers as well who, who've said that, that I really was pretty much dead on in terms of the way this thing works. And it, and it is, there is a lot of ego and there is a lot of, you know, I've got to win in yeah, this sure. and, you know, on both sides. So we meet Sid Feldman, yep. you know, the uh, Philadelphia lawyer uh, who, by the way, if there's anybody uh, from Philadelphia listening to your program and says, Oh, I know Sid Feldman. You don't. <laughs> Sid is the, is the amalgam of about a hundred different uh, uh, litigators that I've known over right. many, many years in Philadelphia and uh, there's something special about Philadelphia lawyers. There's an expression called the Philadelphia lawyer, and there's yeah. something special about them, recognized all the way back to the 18th century. So I tried to put all of that together for Sid and and the other lawyers in the story as well, They're, and the judges too. I tried to tried to make them realistic um, realistic portrayals, but at the same time, they're they're fictional characters. Yes, yes, right. And that was the other thing I really, really enjoyed was that interplay between the lawyers, not only not only within their own departments, but within you know uh, uh, sizing each other up or how they go about trying to uh, you know in in certain situations manipulate each other. Um, you know, I found that fascinating. And there's a, some wonderful scenes in there with uh, the lawyer that represents the the um, the neighborhood of of the, the you know the, the people that are trying to prevent this mine from going ahead um, with with uh, her um, um, Miranda and, uh, and and Mike and and that interplay and then of course you bring in some other wonderful things in there just just relationships just you know the relationships that we see outside of really the law where where Mike has this uh, wonderful relationship uh, with uh, uh, with a woman he knows and um and then they find themselves in this really uh hopeless situation and he's trying to find his way out of it and the only thing he can do is to grab the guy's dog right and, right. and i don't know if it was meant to be somewhat humorous but i thought it was there was some humor in there 
one of the things about Mike and Mike Jacobs is mm. I wanted to make him a kind of an everyman. Yeah. I've read, you know, I've read uh, all kinds of other uh, stories and, uh, and, you know, the, to a certain extent, many of the characters have uh, superpowers mm-hmm. or they're unusually big where they, right. they have, uh, you know, five black belts right. in karate or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, I can't relate to that. I don't have a black, I don't have any belts in karate. You know, I'm, I'm five, eight on a good tall day. You know, I'm not six, five, you know, yeah, I don't have, yeah. uh, you know, hulking shoulders. I never sure. played, uh, you know, college football. I, I'm not that kind of a physique. Yeah. And I certainly never played basketball. And, you know, with all due respect to Harlan Coben, whose main character uh, was a former basketball player. Mm. And, uh, you know, I, I but I, I wanted to make this, character mike be relatable mm. so mike isn't an expert shot i don't know that mike's even handle ever handled a gun yeah but right. the, and all he has are his wits yes. and i wanted my readers to say you know i could be mike i, mm. I think i could do some of this stuff mm. and i so i wanted them to be able to relate to mike and uh and so there is that scene with the dog where he does grab the dog and uh, we won't get into exactly right. what happens <laughs> but because that's part of the uh the fun of the book sure um and some of that is uh intentionally funny and mm-hmm. some of it just came out funny right um i i will say that uh the relationship with nikki you know was really important to the story it, it's mm. a subplot of course yeah this relationship that he has with his best and dearest friend yep whom he's never going to be able to become more than just a friend with. Yes. Um, but that's very uh, important to the end of the book because mm. Mike is faced with a choice. You know, mm. he could call the cops, he could do whatever he wants to do to try to uh, save Nikki. But mm. in the end, he decides to sacrifice himself. Yeah. That's what he decides to do. And that's a huge moment uh, in the story and a huge moment for Mike and how that works out without giving away the end of the story is, is another thing. And the readers will have to read the book uh, to find out. But um, because of this relationship that we've read about from the beginning of the story, we, we see how Mike uh, is willing to, how far Mike is willing to go uh, to save Nikki. And by the way, um, there's, there are several blasting scenes mm-hmm. in that story. Yes. And um, you know, some cataclysmic blasting yeah. scenes and some uh, cataclysmic um, rock slide yep. scenes. And I have, Fortunately, several friends who are in the mining industry and one good friend uh, who is a licensed blaster. And I, I ran all of those scenes by them, mm. by my friends, mm-hmm. to make sure that those scenes were as accurate as possible. Right. So the blasting scene was vetted by my friend, who's the uh, leading licensed blaster in Pennsylvania, who said, in fact, he made a couple of corrections for me, suggested right. a couple of corrections mm. to make it a little more accurate. I, I wanted these scenes to be really accurate. You know, my book is all it takes you into a coal mine. It takes you into uh devastating landslides yep. takes you into blasting situations places that most people don't go you know when yep. i read a book if it's about somebody being in the himalayas or somebody being in africa i want to be transported to those places That's right. yes and it's the same thing with my story i figured that my readers would want to be transported into a mine into a strip mine where all these activities are going on and they wanted to smell the smell and taste you know the the rock dust or whatever else it is mm-hmm. and so i wanted to make it as realistic as possible for my readers so uh long story short there are some humorous scenes in there some of it was intentional and some of it i've been told afterwards and that was pretty funny yeah 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 there's a there's a number of those in there but like you said and i think you do joel a fabulous job of taking us into those minds and and making it as real as possible for us to taste and smell and and be in there and get the sense of what it's like for these guys working in that environment for sure um the danger that real danger 
that you point out. And, and of course, that shapes the character of these guys, right? That's, that's that world. They live in, in that moment where a slide could happen. They could die. They, they live with that unknown that something t- terrible could happen. They might die that day. I do try on uh, both on Facebook, uh, a Joel Burkett author, and also in my newsletter uh, to whenever I see an interesting story mm. about situations like this, real real life stories out of the newspaper, I do try to post that up uh, just to remind readers that these um, calamities are realistic things. I posted one up not too long ago, a few months ago, about a miner who died in a mine uh, when a rock in a rock slide. I mean, mm. so these things do happen. They yeah. happen uh, less frequently today because of the safety laws that are in existence and because um, of the uh, labor union uh, as well that, you know, tries to protect these miners uh, and, and other people in other industries. And they are, um, but they are very, very dangerous places. And the people who go to work there are very brave and strong people. Uh, and it's, it's a very dangerous situation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, Joel, our time is just about up, but I, I did want to um, ask you something because I, I caught a little bit of another interview you did. And you guys were talking about the environment and you were talking about coal and those kind of things. And you, you are take part in other radio shows and that kind of thing. And you were talking about how there's still this disbelief about the environment or the, the climate issue. And, and I thought, hmm, that's really interesting. Even if you don't believe it, if there's still those people sitting on the fence, is it not better to err on the side of caution? What, what harm would it be doing if we started to work towards this and plan for it and take action towards making this a safer and good for the future? You know, sadly, David, uh, despite the fact that literally every country's um, scientific organizations have come out and said that there is man-made climate change, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that the uh, IPCC of the United Nations has come out very strongly and said, after many, many decades of studies, that there is man-made climate change, despite the fact that um, we've seen the temperature rising, we've seen uh, the polar ice caps melting, we see the fires in Western Canada and the U.S., we see the flooding that goes on. We see the hurricanes. We see what's going on in Europe and China right now. Despite all of that, there are still climate change deniers. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you what it's like. Uh, if you, if a person went out into a driving rainstorm and, uh, and was being pelted with rain, it, it would be the same thing as if they said, why, there's no rainstorm going on right now because there's space between those raindrops <laughs> and I'm looking at the space between the raindrops right. and there's no rain in that space between the raindrops. Right. And, and that's kind of what's going on right now, despite the fact that these people are being soaked mm. uh, by the rain. Mm. They're saying they're looking at the space between the raindrops to say there's no uh, there, there's no rainstorm going on right now. Right. So, I mean, the the. Um, you know, the data are out there. There are people doing, there are governments doing studies on this. The United Nations IPCC has come out with, I believe, five now uh, massive studies, mm. international studies. And, um, you know, and yet there are still people out there who say that there is not a thing as man-made climate change. And the problem with that is that many of those people are in government and many of those people are high in government. And uh, it's it's going to have a long term devastating result because changes have to be made now. It may I've read um, from several different writers that it may already be too late to make right. changes. Sadly, right. mm-hmm. uh, hopefully it's not. 
but things have to happen immediately. And um, that means uh, cutting back on coal, uh, ultimately cutting back on natural gas and other fossil fuels. My next book, by the way, called Strange Fire, uh, which comes out on 2-2-22, February 2-22, is about hydraulic fracturing mm. and uh, something else that I have some expertise in. Well, uh, Joel, we'll have to leave it there. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Congratulations on your, your books. The Mid-Rage is the book we've been talking with Joel Burkhardt about today. You can pick it up at independent bookstores. You can also pick it up on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, Headline Books. Uh, and uh, Now, do I understand that you can also read or listen to this? So it's, a, it's an auditory uh, format as well? Yes. Uh, we just uh, came out about three months ago with the Audible version of a mid-range, and you can get it on from Audible, you can get it from Amazon, you can get it from iBooks. So it is now available as an audiobook. So mm. it, 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 as, you're, as you're driving from uh, Toronto <laughs> to Ottawa, you, you can definitely <laughs> listen to it and, and enjoy that. Uh, it's a, uh, it's very exciting. The, uh, the narrator, one of the fun things I did was to pick my narrator mm. and, uh, the narrator's a great uh, guy named Burke Allen. He did a great job narrating the story and, uh, it's, it's a lot of fun to listen to. Right. Well, it's, a, it's also a lot of fun to read and you'll learn something uh, as well. I, I found it fascinating. I want to thank you so much for, uh, coming on the show and talking to us uh, about your, your book, uh, Mid Rage, Joel. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And David, it's been a pleasure talking to you as well. I look forward to coming back and talking with you again. I do too. I can't wait to uh, wait for your next book to come out. So I look forward to that. Thank you very much, David. And that is Joel Burkhat. We've been talking with him about his novel, Amid Rage, which I just mentioned. You can pick up at independent bookstores. You can get it at Headline Books, Amazon, and Barnes & Noble. I recommend it. It's a great read. Uh, you won't be disappointed, I guarantee you. Fascinating book. All right, that is our show for today. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, David Moses. We'll see you again tomorrow right here on Moment of Truth. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.